Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys. Section 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites, by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 5. Cortina to Pieve de Cadore, Part 3. Meanwhile there yet remained much to be seen and done before we could leave Cortina. We must see the Marmarole, hitherto completely hidden behind the Croda Malcora, and the Misurina Lake, famous for its otters and its salmon trout. We must go over the Tre Croce Pass, and, and up the Val d'Aranzo, and above all we must visit Titian's birthplace at Pieve de Cadore. Now it seemed, so far as one could judge from maps, to be quite possible to bring all these points into a single excursion, taking each in its order, and passing a night or two on the road. In order to do this we must follow the Ampezzo Valley to Pieve de Cadore, then take the valley of the Piave as far as its junction with the Anzie at Treponti, and thence branch off into the Val d'Aranzo, and from Aranzo find our way back to Cortina by the Val Buona and the pass of the Tre Croce. This route, if practicable, would take us the complete circuit of the Crota Malcora, Antileo, and Marmarole, and could be done, apparently, nearly all the way by carriage road. A consultation with old Gadina proved that this plan was feasible as far as a place called Casa Sin San Marco in the Val Buena, now accessible by means of one of the new roads in process of construction by the Italian government. As to whether this road was or was not actually completed as far as the Casa di San Marco, he was not quite sure, but he did not doubt that the carriage could be got along somehow. Beyond that point, however, the new way had certainly not yet been opened, and we as certainly could only follow it as far as it went. He would therefore send saddle-horses round by the Tre Croce Pass to meet us at the Casa di San Marco, the carriage coming back by way of a cart-track leading around by Landro. With these saddle-horses we could then ride up to the Misserina Alp, and return by the Tre Croce to Cortina. As regarded time, we could make our giro in either three days or two, sleeping in the one case at both Pieve de Cadore and Aranzo, or in the other, starting early enough to spend the day at Pieve and reach Aranzo in the evening. Having heard unfavorable reports of the inn at Pieve, we decided on the latter course. The day we started upon this, our first long expedition, was also the day that began Giuseppe's engagement as our traveling attendant. We rose early, having ordered the carriage for 7 a.m., a roomy, well-appointed landau, drawn by a pair of capital horses, and driven by a solemn, shock-headed coachman of imperturbable gravity and civility. The whole turnout, indeed, was surprisingly good and comfortable, and would have done credit to any of the first-class hotels we had lately left behind. The Gadinas assembled in a body to see us off. Els maid, mournful enough at being left behind in a strange land, watched us from the balcony. The postmaster, the chemist, the grocer, and the curé stood together in a little knot at the corner of the piazza to see us go by. At last, bags, rugs, and umbrellas being all in, Giuseppe jumped up to his seat on the box, the driver cracked his whip, and away we went in the midst of a chorus of buon viaggios from the lookers-on. The first twelve or fourteen miles of road, as far as Tia Cadore, lay over the same ground that we had already traversed the day of our arrival at Cortina. 
At Tay, however, we turned aside, leaving the Montezuco zigzag far below, and so went up the long white road leading to the hamlet on the hill. About halfway between the two valleys we drew up at a little wayside church, to see a certain miracle-working crucifix said to have been found in the year 1540 in a field close by, where it was turned up accidentally by the plough. Without being, as some local antiquaries would have had it believed, so ancient as either the time of the invasion of the Visigoths in A.D. 410, or that of the Huns in A.D. 432, the crucifix is undoubtedly curious, and may well have been buried for security at the time of the German invasion under Maximilian, in 1508. Since that time it is supposed to have wrought a great number of miracles, to have sweated blood, and so stayed the pestilence of 1630, and in various ways to have extended an extraordinary degree of favor and protection towards the people of Cadore. The little church, originally dedicated to St. Antonio, is now called the Search of the Santismo Crocifexo, and enjoys a high reputation throughout this part of Tyrol. The crucifix is carved in old brown wood, and the sacred image is somewhat ludicrously disfigured by a wig of real hair. We reached Pieve de Cadori at about half-past eleven a.m., delays included, and found the albergo quite as indifferent as its reputation. It was very small, very dirty, and crowded with peasants eating, drinking, and smoking. Going upstairs in search of some corner where we might leave our wraps, and by and by take luncheon apart, we found the bedroom so objectionable that we decided to occupy the landing. It was a comfortless place, crowded with lumber, and only a shade more airy than the rest of the house. A space was cleared, however, a couple of seats were borrowed from a neighboring room, and the top of a great carved cassone, or linen chest, was made to serve for a table. Having ordered some food to be ready by one o'clock, it being now nearly eleven, we then hastened out to see the sights of the place. The landlady's youngest daughter, an officious little girl of about twelve, volunteered as guide, and being rejected, followed us pertinaciously from a distance. The quaint old piazza, with its gloomy arcades, its antique houses with Venetian windows, its cafés, its fountain, and its loungers, is just like the piazzas of Serraval, Longarone, and other provincial towns of the same epoch. With its picturesque prefettura and belfry tower, one is already familiar in the pages of Gilbert's Cadore. There, too, is the fine old double flight of steps leading up to the principal entrance on the first floor, as in the town hall at Helbron, a feature by no means Italian. And there, about midway up the shaft of the campanile, is the great, gaudy, well-remembered fresco, better meant than painted, wherein Titian, some twelve feet in height, this picture, a gift to the commune of Cadore from the artist who painted it, is now the only mural fresco in the town. Some years ago, one of the old houses in the piazza, now ruthlessly whitewashed, is said to have borne distinct traces of external decorations by Cesare Vicellio, the cousin and pupil of Titian. Turning aside from the glowing piazza and following the downward slope of a hill to the left of the prefettura, we come, at the distance of only a few yards, upon another open space, grassy and solitary, surrounded on three sides by rambling, dilapidated-looking houses, and opening on the fourth to a vista of woods and mountains. In the midst of this little piazza stands a massive stone fountain, time-worn and water-worn, 
surmounted by a statue of St. Tiziano in the robes and square cap of an ecclesiastic. The water, trickling through two metal pipes in the pedestal beneath St. Tiziano's feet, makes a pleasant murmuring, in the old stone basin, while, half hidden behind this fountain, and leaning up as if for shelter against a larger house adjoining, stands a small, whitewashed cottage, upon the side wall of which an incised tablet bears the following record. Nell, 1477, Fra queste umile mura, Tiziano Vesselio, vene a celebre vita, donde Uscova gia presso a Sentiani, in Venezia, Adi, 17 Agosto, 1576. A poor, mean-looking, low-roofed dwelling, disfigured by external chimney-shafts and a built-out oven, lit with tiny, blinking medieval windows, altogether unlovely, altogether unnoticeable, but the birthplace of Titian. It looked different, no doubt, when he was a boy, and played outside here on the grass. It had probably a high, steep roof, like the homesteads in his own landscape drawings, but the present old brown tiles have been over it long enough to get mottled with yellow lichens. One would like to know if the fountain and the statue were there in his time, and if the water trickled over to the same low tune, and if the woman came there to wash their linen and fill their brazen water-jars, as they do now. This lovely green hill, at all events, sheltered the home from the east winds, and Monte Durano lifted its strange crest yonder against the southern horizon, and the woods dipped down to the valley, then as now, where the bridle-path slopes away to join the road to Venice. We went up to the house and knocked. The door was opened by a sickly, hunchbacked lad who begged us to walk in, and who seemed to be quite alone there. The house was very dark, and looked much older inside than from without. A long, low, gloomy upstairs chamber with a huge penthouse fireplace jutting into the room was evidently as old as the days of Titian's grandfather, to whom the house originally belonged, while a very small and very dark adjoining closet, with a porthole of windows sunk in a slope of massive wall, was pointed out as the room in which the great painter was born. "'But how do you know that he was born here?' I asked. The hunchback lifted his wasted hand with a deprecating gesture. "'They have always said so, Signora,' he replied. "'They have said so for more than four hundred years.' "'They?' I repeated doubtfully. "'The Vicelli, Signora.' I had understood that the Vicelio family was extinct. Scusate, signora, said the hunchback. The last direct descendant of El Tiziano died not long ago, a few years before I was born, and the collateral Vicelli are citizens of Cadore to this day. If the signora will be pleased to look for it, she will see the name of Vicelio over a shop on the right-hand side, as she returns to the piazza. I did look for it, and there, sure enough, over a small shop window I found it. It gave one an odd sort of shock, as if time were for the moment annihilated, and I remembered how, with something of the same feeling, I once saw the name of Rubens over a shop-front in the market-place at Colonia. I left the house less incredulous than I entered it. Of the identity of the building there has never been any kind of doubt, and I am inclined to accept with the house the identity of the room. Titian, it should be remembered, lived long enough to become, long before he died, the glory of his family. He became rich, he became noble, his fame filled Italy. 
Hence the room in which he was born may well have acquired, half a century before his death, perhaps even during the lifetime of his mother, that sort of sacredness that is generally of post-mortem growth. The legend, handed down from Vecellio to Vecellio in uninterrupted succession, lays claim, therefore, to a more reliable pedigree than most traditions of a similar character. The large old house adjoining, known in Cadore as the Casa Zampieri, was the next place to be visited. It originally formed part of the Vecellio property, and contains an early fresco, once external but now brought inside by the enlargement of the house, and supposed to have been painted by Titian in his youth. The hunchback offered to conduct us to this house, and, having ushered us out into the little piazza, carefully locked his own door behind him. Here, lying in wait for us, we found the officious small girl with some three or four companions of her own age, who immediately formed themselves into an uninvited bodyguard, and would not be shaken off. End of section 12